Welcome to Connect, Share, Inspire, an all-new podcast that is 100% committed to helping you keep your tank full and your cup overflowing. I'm Carrie McCormick, and I am excited to be your host for Connect, Share, Inspire. So, for all of those who know me, you know this has been a journey to get here. But I am super duper excited about this because you know what? I have worked with some amazing individuals over the last 30 years. Some therapists and families and teachers and individuals that just really are incredible and are truly inspiring. They're committed, they're passionate, they're motivating. I can't say enough. I've also seen some of these same individuals go through what I call burnout. And I've been there too. I don't know about you, but I it happens. And they just don't feel that same passion or excitement or energy. Where does that energy go? You're excited one minute and the next minute, what's going on? You're overwhelmed. You're facing a challenge or a struggle that just, you don't know what to do. And then you have a conversation and you talk to maybe some colleagues or you go to a conference and you listen to someone who's really passionate and has come up with a a solution to this challenge that you're facing and boom, you've solved that or you have an idea of where to start. But more importantly than hearing that solution or figuring it out, I believe that when we connect and share and inspire, empower, motivate one another, I believe in that moment, we start to understand that we're not alone and that everyone, everyone has experiences and stories and ideas that should be shared because we can help one another. We can be of service to one another. So Connect, Share, Inspire is all about that. It's about bringing you stories of successes and failures, of challenges and struggles, and finding finding the way through those to solve the problem and understanding that we're not alone. I'm interviewing people and they've shared tips and tricks and hacks and some simple ideas that think, whoa, why didn't I think of this earlier? So I hope, I hope you will join me each week for an episode of Connect, Share, Inspire. And not only to find solutions, not only to hear valuable information, but also take that time, that itty bit little time for yourself to fill your tank, to keep your cup overflowing so that you can continue to stay passionate about the work that you do and excited because the work that you do is so valuable and is so important. And what you provide and what you give 
to your students, to your clients, to your community, to your colleagues, to your family. That is truly, truly a gift. And that is why we need to keep connecting and sharing and inspiring each other to be our best, to stay committed, to be passionate about the work that we do because it is so valuable. So I hope you will join me for my very first episode of Connect, Share, Inspire. I will be interviewing Brenda Del Monte, an SLP, who wrote the book, I See You In There. If you haven't heard of the book or don't know Brenda, I think you will really, really find it enjoyable and fascinating and full of really interesting and useful information. So join me on our first episode of Connect, Share, Inspire. Learn all about the book, I See You In There, and Brenda Del Monte. And until then, keep connecting, keep sharing, and let's keep inspiring one another to stay passionate about the work we do and the life we live. I am excited to introduce my guest today. She is an SLP and assistive technology evaluator and facilitator. She has over 20 plus years of experience working with children and adults with disabilities, and she is both passionate and committed to providing a voice to the voiceless. She has worked as an SLP in the Washington State Public Schools and is now a private practitioner in Arizona, where she does AAC evaluations and trainings. She's a national presenter and has shared her knowledge at both Closing the Gap and ATIA, where she presented a collaborative research project on accessing AAC. She is the co-founder of Believe Beyond Ability, a nonprofit organization that evaluates, provides, and trains those with multiple disabilities on using assistive technology to increase independence. Believe Beyond Ability is also well-known for hosting events like the Derby that promotes play and independence through the power of movement. She is currently a co-host of the Awe and Wonder podcast, hosted by the Special Ed Tech Center, and in my opinion, is truly an awe and wondrous. And she is the author of a newly published book, I See You In There. Brenda Del Monte, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning. Brenda, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. I cannot wait to share more about your book. I see you in there. And, you know, I I loved your book. It was packed full of so many great messages and ideas and stories and helpful tools. I just, all I can say is I am both honored and excited to have you on the podcast today as our very first guest. So let's just dive right in and get going because this is going to be fun. So your book is a collection of stories and stories that you share uh, from people that you've worked with in the past and people that you currently work with. And through their stories, you share all these great messages. And I love that. In particular, you started off in the book with this story about a man named Martin. And I know he had such a profound effect on your life. 
And I know you went back to school and school was not your favorite thing. And that later on you shared in the book that you had actually uh, had been diagnosed as an adult and you found out you had dyslexia. And so I can't even imagine what it was like going to school, not knowing you had dyslexia and just the challenges you faced, but you did it. And Martin had a profound effect on you. And then you've had a profound effect on so many people you've worked with. So can you please share more about Martin's story? Yes. When I started writing the book, I didn't know it was going to be a book. I was just writing stories down of influential people in my career. And he was the first one I wrote because when I looked back, I feel like he was very pivotal in my mindset around working with people that were not functionally verbal. So um, he was, I met him at United Cerebral Palsy in Seattle, and I was a speech assistant then. And um, every half hour, I got a new client wheeled into my room, and I had to try to communicate with them. And I was asking him, show me your yes, show me your no, and do you have a device, and can I get it out of your backpack? And I mean, I was calling the 1-800 number of whatever was on the back of that device, because I didn't know anything. But they, I will forever be grateful to every single one of those clients and their patients with me at that time. And um, when I met him, he was delightful. He was a very verbal person, but low intelligibility. So most people didn't understand him. And after a long time, you end up speaking Martin and you do kind of understand him, but um, it took, it took a while to understand his verbal speech. But during that time, we just built rapport and he told me about himself and we, we spend a whole session trying to figure out one little thing that he wanted to add that he liked Shania Twain in his device. And it took me forever to figure out who, who was his favorite person because of the barriers there. And it was worth it. Every single time it took a whole 30 minutes to figure out the one thing he really wanted to say, that was worth it. That was worth it. And it built so much rapport. And one day, I think it was about six months in, he rolled in and he told me, he said, do you want to, I'm writing my story. Do you want to hear my story? And he pressed play on his device and it had, it told me the story of his life. And, um, he was born typical and he had an appendicitis at age two and was given too much anesthesia. And when he awoke from that surgery, he had cerebral palsy. And it was um, an, an anoxic event, lack of oxygen in the brain, and he never regained the ability to walk or um, speak clearly. And it was devastating. And the anesthesiologist killed himself. And he told me this in, the, in his story. And it was so tragic. And he, then he goes on to say, I remember it like yesterday. I was seven years old. I, my mom made my favorite breakfast. And they, my parents sat me down and said that the teachers, the doctors, the professionals, the people, all the people that know better had advised his parents that he should be institutionalized, which again, this was 30 years ago in my career, 25 years ago in my career, and he was older than me. So, you know, when you go back, this was, 
you know, in the fifties or something, everybody was doing the best they could with the tools they had. And everyone knew, everyone was taking the advice of what was common then. And he said, um, the once sunny day began to rain and I knew that God was crying with me as they drove to the facility. And I was floored. I was floored by the writing. It was way better than anything I, I ever wrote. I was floored by the um, understanding of the situation. I was floored by the recognition of a higher power at seven. I was just, I was floored by every single part of it. And I realized that anyone that ran into him on the street would see a very physically disabled person and hear just a garble of words at best and likely assume a low intellect, likely assume that there wasn't as much going on in his brain that there was. And that was pivotal. That was like, this is it. This is what I have to do. Everyone is here on purpose, for a purpose, and we need to know their purpose. And the only way to know that is to give each one a voice. And that's when I went back to grad school and got my degree. And that was all a super big struggle. Nothing I wanted to do. I didn't enjoy college and I didn't enjoy school, period. So it was a huge um, thing for me to go back and do all that, which is what was required to do what I do now, which is getting communication devices um, for as young as I can justify, because I do believe that we need to get these kids' voices quite a bit younger than what we're doing now. So it's been a huge motivation in my whole career is knowing him, hearing his story, and identifying assumptions that are made around this population. What an incredible gift you received in working with Martin and hearing his story. I mean, look at the impact that it had on your life and that continues to have on your life and the life of everyone else that you work with. So truly a gift. You know, we are here on purpose for a purpose. And you, you, you talk about that. You talk about everyone is here on purpose and for a purpose. You know, that's such a powerful message. That is a message that we need to keep thinking about and keep sharing because it's so, so true. You, know, you also talk about another powerful message, and that is the idea that human connection, it's creating that human connection is the purpose for communication. And you also talk about creating authentic human connection, making a connection first in the evaluation process because it's critical. It's so important. Now, I'm going to ask you, how do you as a therapist create that authentic human connection with your clients and their families when you first meet them, as you're working with them? How do you do it? Do you use a checklist? Do you, you know, are there specific questions that you ask? Is there, you know, does it take a lot of time to create that human connection? And you know what? Why is it so important to create that human connection first before anything else? Why is it so important? 
Yeah. So I, I, over my career, I've been asked so many times to um, make, a, I want to clone you basically. We need more evaluators. We need more people that know how to do what you do. So make a list of what, what do you do so that the next person that goes in can do the, the check off the things you do, meaning, you know, what questions do you ask? How do you, um, what devices do you trial? All that kind of stuff as if there's, as if there's a checklist and, and there may be many SLPs who do checklists and that is amazing skill that I don't have because I just don't think that way. Um, so for me, I do have some standard questions that I ask, um, for evaluations and trainings and things like that. Um, but the most valuable ones are what do they like and how do you know they like it? Because when I'm talking to a parent, they'll say, sometimes they'll say, oh, they like music. And I'll say, how do you know? And it may be something different than we think. And it's like, oh, well, they wag their foot, right? Or they actually, they sway from side to side. Not always is it the obvious, well, they light up like a Christmas tree and they smile and they laugh. So I want to know what enjoyment looks like so that when I see it, I know what it is. And parents are great observers of their children in general, and in particular, those that are not using words to communicate. Sometimes parents are saying, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know what they like. And I don't, I, I have no idea. And that lets me know that where the parents at in stages of grief and that potentially um, assuming that their child is in there and hearing and seeing and understanding everything is sad for them and they're not, they haven't accepted all of that yet. It doesn't mean that the child's not in there. It doesn't mean the child does things don't make them happy. It means that parents are having a, their own journey on identifying that. And that tells me a lot of information too. The reason why I ask what makes them tick is because why communicate? Why do something really, really hard unless you really, really want it? I mean, I want to do what's the most motivating because I'm going to ask you to do a really hard thing. I'm going to ask you to um, access a communication device. And again, I specialize in those with really complex bodies. So often it's with a switch or with eye gaze or some with an, if it is with direct select as in pointing to a picture with their hand, um, even that is, can be physically challenging for some of the kids I'm talking about. So if I'm going to ask them to do a really hard thing, I have to be doing something that's really motivating. And when you let their motivating item, thing, interest guide you, then they want to do, they want to know you, they want to be near you, they want to work for you because they, you're going to deliver on something that they really like. So what is the point of communication if it's not human connection? What is the point of it if you're not getting to know me and I'm not getting to know you? And I do think that the minute we get the device out there, we forget 
what communication is and we start testing kids, find this, and we turn it into a tool to demonstrate knowledge. And when I'm building human connection, I'm assuming knowledge. I'm assuming that you know who you are, what you like, and I just want you to share it with me. And so I can't tell you, find Apple, find music, find trampoline, because I don't know yet what you like. So my open-endedness, what do you like to do? What do you like to eat? What do you like? Means that there's no wrong answer. And I'm not testing you. And whatever you tell me, I believe you. And that is what communication is. It's human connection. It's purpose. It's learning something about you that I don't already know and believing what you say. And that is what I try to simulate all interactions with kids, with communication devices. And that doesn't take very long. That's about a 10-minute thing. I mean, so if you have a 30-minute session as a school therapist, you can drop your agenda and let the student lead, and you will get the most participation when they get to talk about what they want to talk about. And I say this all the time, but, you know, kids get to say what they want to say, when they want to say it, or not. And that actually still doesn't say that they don't know what's going on. It doesn't speak to their intellect. It doesn't speak to their lack of intellect. They get to say what they want to say, when they want to say it, and they get to refuse. And that still means that everything that they are thinking and that they want to communicate is valuable. And they get to maintain agency over their body while they do that. Meaning I'm not making their hand do that. I'm not make, I'm not pressing their hand into the switch. I'm not holding their head so they have to look at the device for eye gaze. And I'm not make I'm not doing hand over hand ever. So they maintain agency over their bodies. And these are these kids with really complex bodies have a lot of things done to them. Just practically, that's the only way to keep them clean, to keep them fed. I understand that. But when we're looking at communication, this needs to be all you all the time. No, we need to, yeah, we need to get to the end of a communication exchange and have no one doubt the intent. And if we're physically assisting any activation of communication, there's we've taken the power of it away from the child. Mm, mm-hmm. It is so important to keep that power of choice with the individual. You know, to be able to be, say what you want to say and, and express your ideas, it is, it's critical. At least that's everything I've seen over the last 30 years. And, you know, and I actually know for myself that's so true as well. Uh, okay, you just said something um, earlier. You said that when you're asking parents... Uh, what their child likes or how do they know that their child likes something that sometimes you hear them say, I don't know. And that kind of gives you an idea of where they are in the grief cycle, the stage of the grief cycle. And, you know, I, I have to say, I was a little surprised when I was reading the book that, that you had a chapter in there about the grief cycle 
Now, after reading the book, I completely understand the, the benefits of understanding the grief cycle and how important it is to understand it. But I, I'm curious as, why did you include the chapter on the grief cycle early, like in the beginning of the book, rather than the end? Mm-hmm. Well, I decided not to write the grief cycle at the end, which I think it would have been a natural thing to do because I did not want the grief cycle to be an afterthought in any reader's mind in this. And it is because every parent, <clears throat> with the exception of foster parents who seek out um, the population that I'm talking about. And so they know they, they're intentionally um, working with children with physical disabilities. Um, every parent had a dream about a typical child and whether they find out in utero that there's going to be complications, whether they're, they find out at birth that there is a delay or a disability or whether there's an acquired disability, a drowning, a, um, and a car accident, how, however, the disability, uh, there is huge loss. Um, there's huge loss for the dream. There's huge loss for the potential. There's huge loss for all that you thought was going to be this person, this life. And what's interesting about that loss is it seemed cyclical in that there was loss that I'm, I don't have a typical baby. And then the first day of kindergarten rolls around and everybody from your Lamaze class is posting something on Facebook or Instagram or something saying first day of kindergarten and yours doesn't look like that. And you're right back in grief and loss and anger and denial or whatever phase. And it happens again and again. And somebody posts their first soccer game and you realize that's, that's not happening for my child. I mean, I had a parent of 16-year-olds who are seasoned parents for kids with disabilities by 16 and friends are getting their license and they're back in a very sad space of the loss of not being ever being that independent. And I realized that every parent we meet is in some stage of this and understanding that has given me such insight when I'm in an IEP meeting, when the parent is mad, when a parent is um, is overly aggressively, I want to know what to do. I want to get, um, I want to make a plan. I need everything going or looking aloof, looking like they don't even care. There's fight, there's flight, there's freeze going on in that. And I guarantee whatever you are witnessing is not for lack of love and compassion and eat, sleep, and, and breathing the needs of their child. It just looks different in different stages. 
And as I moved forward in telling more stories, I really wanted parents to feel seen and heard in the process. And I will say that probably my biggest compliment that I, the compliment that I rank the highest is when parents say, I felt seen, I felt heard. I didn't know someone who didn't have a child with a disability understood what it's like day in, day out. And I would say, I don't live it. I don't, I don't have a child with a disability, but I do feel like that's a really big compliment. And the reason why I was able to write about it is because of um, what I've witnessed and how candid parents have become with me over time. So I know that parents could have written this book better, but they are too busy taking care of their child. So um, I love that parents felt seen and heard. And I feel like that's why it's important for all of us working with kids with disabilities to, again, not make too many assumptions about the behavior of a parent or a caregiver at any given moment, because it's, it's loaded. That is so true. You know, you just never know what's going on with people. It is way better to ask questions and listen and observe rather than make assumptions that could be completely incorrect. Now, you know, like I said earlier, I was surprised when you included the grief cycle in the book. Boy, after reading it and learning more, I found it so beneficial and so helpful. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for including it in the book and for starting this conversation because I think it's really important. Um, okay. I want to switch gears. I want to talk about connection. Now, in the book, you talk about tools that you can use to create connection. And in particularly, the tool I want to talk about is the step-by-step -step switch. You use it in a very clever and effective and simple way. But boy, the, the connection, the bond that it creates can create between school and home just seems so cool. I mean, it's really cool. So can you share a little bit more about how you use the step-by-step -step switch and the benefits of creating that home and school connection? Right. Yes. One of the ones I started doing this with the most was Cameron with Kenzie, and I wrote about them. But so he was a child that I met right at, at age two who had Plasius Mersbacher, which is a form of leukodystrophy, which that's just a whole bunch of big words to say that it's degenerative. And to know that you have a degenerative disorder at age two is its own set of very complex emotions for all involved. Um, but the mom was amazing. And it, he was one at that time, he was one of my youngest kids I ever qualified for eye gaze as a two year old. And what I realized in that evaluation was magical. And I think I went back five times with three different devices. I mean, it was, it was a, the evaluation itself was um, so insightful. And um, we realized that it's a lot to ask a preschool teacher to program an eye gaze device daily. 
about what happened in my day. <laughs> and so we, yeah, and we do, we ask them to do it in various forms on the iPad, on NovaChat, on Accent, on um, different devices, but they do have some easy pieces in there. So some, some of the devices, you just hit the button, you record your voice, and it's, it, it, they've made it easier. But when you're not doing direct select, in particular when you're doing IDs, um, it's, it's a full Windows computer. It's, there's some significant programming, and it's unrealistic. And so I got the step-by-step idea, and I was like, you know what, let's record this. And so the step-by-step, for those of you listening that might not know what that is, is it's a switch that you record a sequence of phrases on it. And so he hits the switch, and it says, hey, mom, do you want to hear about my day? And then you have to hit the switch, and then he has to wait. And he gets to have this wait time. You get to have conversation you're not dictating, I want crackers on the device. You're actually having a conversation. And he gets to say, you know, we did something on polar bears today and we um, crumpled up paper and cotton balls and threw it at each other and it was so much fun. And then mom has this opportunity to go, we can do that at home, right? And then mom and dad both would would record and say, um, do you want to hear about my night? I got to, I tasted spaghetti. Do you like spaghetti? And it was never, it was, it's, the intent is never to share medical information, private information, any of that stuff. The intent is to create connection. And we get to hear about what kids like outside of schools, practitioners, families get to hear about what really happened at school that their child enjoyed. And I am telling you, when you know that, when parents know that their teacher sees their child and provides um, enjoyable experiences at school that are unique to that child, there will never be a problem in that relationship. The, the IEP meetings are lovely. The... The, I, I just, I, it doesn't, the paperwork's the same, the, the team can be the same. And if you build that rapport from um, parent to teacher through the child, because that's what this whole thing's about, it, it is the most effective way to move forward, to make gains in school and to have parents buy in on homework or any kind of carryover activities. And doing it on the step-by-step is pretty easy to program. The trick is courses that you have to work with your OT so you know where where the switch site is. For him, he could use his hand, but some of my kids have the step-by-step and they they need to do a head switch. That's the first thing to develop and the last thing to decline. And head switches are um, definitely something he uses now. So... um, it's just one of those things where it made me realize that it, that, that tool, Carrie, has been around my whole career. Like, if you won't go into a 1995 classroom, you're going to find one of those. I mean, it's been around for a hot minute. And if you go on, like, AbleNet or site, you'll see 101 ways to use a step-by-step. And I don't even know if that's one of them. I mean, there's a million ways. I mean, in the very beginning with step-by-step, I'll do a itsy-bitsy spider went up the water spout. 
And then they have to hit the switch just to hear the next line of the song, just to give value to why would I hit a switch at all, unless it's something that's fun, right? So there's a lot of uses for step-by-step, and I know that's not the intent of this question, but I um, really think that all kids need a home-to-school connection that are driven by the child. And when you think about those that are verbal and they're getting in the car and you're saying, what happened today? What'd you do today? And you get the whole rundown. And you know what you don't get? I learned about, you know, Abraham Lincoln and I learned two plus two is four. No, you get the Johnny got caught picking his nose and Susie fell asleep and somebody wet their pants. You get the dirt, you know, and that's what matters, you know. Even when my kids were young, I used to play good, bad, weird. Like, tell me something good, something bad, something weird today. And it keeps the negative Nellies from being too negative and the positive Polly's honest with things that aren't as awesome at school that you might not hear about. And none of it's about academics. So, you know, you're going to get this cheat home about what they did and possibly some smiley face to frowny face about their behavior. But it's really not what kids talk about. They talk about all the little things that make up life. Yes, so true. You know, I just love the idea of building rapport through the child and talking about the everyday stuff of life. That is so cool. Now, what a great tool the step-by-step is. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, we will leave a link to AbleNet in the show notes below so that you could go check it out for yourself. You know, something I have found, though, is that whenever uh, you're in a, implementing a new technology, uh, sometimes you get some pushback. People don't know what to do with it or how to use it. So have you ever had this happen, uh, trying to implement a step-by-step? And if so, um, what do you do? Right. When I used to tell people to record their news, they would say, well, we don't do anything exciting. And I'm like, nobody goes to Disneyland every day. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what do typical kids talk about? The smallest of things. You know why? Because all of our lives are mundane. And you know what we talk about? The one human connection here and the one human connection there. I mean, that's, that's what makes our world go round. That's what makes getting up in the morning actually worth it. And so when you begin to think about, I want them to share their human experiences with their other humans, then you are. You're totally focusing on the person and not the disability. Yes. Focusing on the individual and not the disability. That is empowering. Now, you recommend that therapists should work with an OT when setting up a step-by-step switch. That way you can find the best access position for the individual. Now, in the book, you talk about the team approach and the power of the team approach. I would love for you to talk more about the team approach. And I, you know, I want to know, have you always known that it was a good idea to use a team approach? Second, I would love for you to discuss the power of movement and in particularly using movement as a motivator. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I knew bits and pieces of this early on in my career, but I will say that I went to the Adaptive Switch Lab in Texas where if you can get yourself there, 
do it. And I think the training itself is free. Um, and it's a two-day training. And I learned about powered mobility. And I'm a speech-language pathologist. So I'm going to tell you right now, nobody paid me as a speech-language pathologist to go learn about this. But I did want to know how um, powered will power mobility integrated with communication devices. But um, that's one of those things where you went with wanting to learn one thing and you actually learned everything you didn't know you didn't know. So what I learned there, there's so many things. One is I re reiterated what I already knew and that that access trumps language every time. And I just did an evaluation yesterday where um, – they really want to stick with the app on the iPad that they know, except for he actually can't access it independently. He actually doesn't point, period. So everything's hand over hand, and they are six months into this, and he can't point his finger. That I mean, his diagnosis is significant and severe, and I don't know, I don't know, the timeline on when that will ever happen, but he definitely needed accommodations to access the communication device. And she said, well, is this the best language system? And I said, the best language system is the one he can access. We can make any language system work. If they can't independently access it, we've missed it. We're not making any gains. And so it's definitely something that we're still teaching. Um, is that they, we have to figure out the way that they're going to access the language independently. And then within that access method, what are our choices? And so to that end, as a speech pathologist, you need a motor person on your team. And that's, I've always worked with OTs because I've always worked with kids with complex bodies, but we went to bat here in Arizona to be sure that um, AAC evaluations included a motor specialist and they got paid um, fairly for that, which is which led to a ton of research we did in 2016 and um, seeing that um, oh, like 48% of our kids with communication device needs had some level of visual impairment, whether that be cortical visual impairment, whether that be eye-hand coordination, whether that be sensory overload through vision um, or sensory heightened um, stimulation through vision. And who learns about vision? Occupational therapists. I mean, that they're, they're the ones taking classes on those sensory pieces. Speech-language pathologists sure aren't. So speech pathologists are... are, are very skilled in language development and language program, language opportunities and speech development and all of that stuff. But when we're talking about access and we're talking about eye-hand coordination, we're talking about the sensory system, we're talking about movement, we're talking about um, spasticity, we're talking about so many things, re recovering from seizures, like all the things we need to think about. We have to have a motor person on our team to help us look at this whole body. And so that's something that we've, we continue to fight for and we continue to win. Um, so, so critical. Well, the other thing that I like when I'm doing um, 
like an overlap. I don't, we call it synergetic therapy here, but it's not co-treat, meaning I, we don't both work with one kid, but I might have a child and my occupational therapist has a child. So we're kind of all working together a little bit because movement is so, so motivating for those in complex bodies. They don't have a lot of independent movement. They don't have a lot of ways to move their body. And when you can incorporate movement, you increase their level of alertness. You increase their motivation. I mean, these are kids that have never been able to go be other, be away from their parents independently. They can't walk away. They can't roll away. They're held physically. They're moved to their each, each position physically. And so when we put a switch in a derby car and they drive off for the first time away from their parents, the glee is immeasurable. Um, so, and I say that, like, what does that have to do with the AAC? It's like, well, they, when we put things on there about changing their position and when we put things on there that um, allow them to do movement. So a lot, we have sports pages where we have adapted baseball and adapted football and adapted um, different bowling. They're always choosing that. They're always choosing things with movement. They're always choosing things with competition. They're always choosing things with um, independent mo mobility. And that's where our mobility for younger children need to be considered so much more. But um, speech pathologists need to get, get out of sitting in a box in, at a table in a room that's isolated, that's not simulated in any part of the rest of their life that's not motivating to just talk to you, an adult, because those are the only people talking to them. So let's figure out how to um, increase communication with peers and doing that through movement-based activities because that's what kids their age are doing and want to be doing. So I feel like movement is motivating and you can use that movement to master your AAC we, Melanie and I, the occupational therapist that I work with, we taught movement, mass, movement, motivation, and mastery of AAC. I think it was at Closing the Gap. And it was still one of my favorite classes to teach. It was the most feedback that we've gotten in a long time because I think it helped with a mindset shift that this the teaching communication with eight out of 10 hitting a button, doing a thing, is that's not it. That's just not it. And simulating um, an opportunity for movement and setting up for communication between two two kids, even if you only get three activations in 30 minutes, but they all of them were the most meaningful thing they've ever said to another peer, that's way more effective than 10, 20, 30 activations of something that was compliance at best. I could not agree with you more. Being able to say something that's meaningful to you is so much more empowering and way more motivating in wanting to learn how to use your communication device. Now, for those of you who have never heard of Adaptive Switch Labs, I will leave a link in the show notes below so that you can go and check them out and find out more about their training and everything that they're doing. Okay, Brenda. You talked a little bit about the Derby, and I would love for you to talk more about your nonprofit, Believe Beyond Ability, 
and the work that you guys are doing and tell us more about the Derby because I think it's just a fantastic idea and I know it's grown and I'm super excited for people to learn more about it. Okay. So myself and the occupational therapists that have been rogue now for 10 years or more, we were so thankful for the state of Arizona. They're incredibly generous in getting communication devices at um, a re- in a reasonable time frame for a huge number of people kiddos we we have great numbers of distribution of AAC devices here in our state and people move here for that reason but um what is not medically necessary is access to play so a basic jelly bean switch that's 65 dollars is not going to be purchased by anyone in the insurance world an adapted toy and I love the companies that adapt toys, but by the time they've purchased it, adapted it, marketed it, and sold it, it's $100. And now we have $165 to um, get a switch-activated toy. And that's not with the mount, and that's not with the expertise of an OT to even know where the switch site is. And by the way, parents don't even know where the switch is or adapt where, what an adapted toy is. Um, we have not figured out how to market what's on the market to our population. But um, we were like, you know what we should do? Let's just start a nonprofit because we were already buying this stuff for our kids. <laughs> we were already buying switches and we were already adapting some toys. So it was like, let's start a nonprofit. Raise That way it's a 501c3. Some will raise some money and we don't have to buy all of it, which is where that started. But since then, it's grown and grown and grown. We're on nine years. Well, yeah, nine years, 2014. And um, we made it through COVID, which is just magical and beyond anything we we ever did. Um, but what we have a toy giveaway. We give away about 100 toys and, and the corresponding switches. And I say that because sometimes it's like a remote control car where you need two switches. One's turning and one's going straight or however you're doing it. It's a great way to, to teach switch access for young kids. Um, we do a durable medical exchange. So our very young children will grow out of a tumble form. Like they get it when they're two. And then, you know, when they're four, they grow out of it. And then we have a four-year-old that needs a tumble form. And they come and we, we have ATPs from New Motion here that come and help um, fit the equipment so that, so that we can just repurpose it. If there's no money exchange. It's literally an exchange. But it's done in a way with integrity so that the people are leaving with equipment that actually fits their child and they know how to use the equipment. So we do that a couple of times a year just as our storage unit builds up because people donate to us. And then we do the derby. And the derby is where we adapt kind of the Barbie Jeeps. And we have firefly seats now that we put inside them so that they can use that seat and eye chair or anything else that they might need a seating system and they had the switch to make the car go. Most of them need a modular hose that goes, that clips on because they're using their head switch. Um, we have kids with trach and vent. We've had very young children. Um, I'm trying to figure out, I, I can't remember. I think we had a 10 month old was this youngest. And then again, they grow, the bodies can't really be more than about three or four years old just because they don't fit in the cars beyond that. But, um, 
so we've done derbies and, and we say derby because they come guys and they all drive their cars and they hit each other and it's super fun. And we've gotten more sophisticated. We worked with a robotics team in a high school here for a long time, but now we've figured out how to do it ourselves. And um, we also buy cars now where the kids have the control of the go, they, the sustained hitting of a switch, they go. But the parents have the remote control for the steering just so that everyone feels like, you know, they can keep their child safe. But we have a dirt, we have a um, complete um, kind of like obstacle course where they're driving through things and over bridges and doing things at the, at the Derby. So we do that once a year too. Here in Arizona, we do that in February because there's a guarantee almost of no rain and not too hot. Um, but we have the privilege of those things. But Believe Beyond Ability is one of those things as, and if you talk to other people who've started nonprofits, it's a consistent theme. And if you feel led to do something in the nonprofit capacity, it takes on a life of its own. It sustains itself through people you never knew were supposed to come into your life. And when they leave your life, the next person's supposed to come in. I mean, there, there's so much that um, flows as, that, I can't even explain it other than to say that we'll go to a home and somebody will say, hey, we outgrew the bath chair. Do you guys have someone for it? And now I every single time I say yes, because I'm about to meet that person. I know it. And because with the next house, the mom's saying my back's going to break if I don't get a if I don't we don't get approved for this bath chair. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'll go. I have one in my car right now. And it happens over and over again. I couldn't even count on all fingers and toes how many times that's happened. So when that happens that many times, you realize all you're doing when you're writing a nonprofit is saying, I'm willing to show up for this cause, whatever it is. And the rest of it actually manifests as you're moving forward. It's pretty amazing. And if I win the lottery tomorrow, that's the only thing I do because it's the most rewarding. It's getting kids moving. It's getting kids playing. It's getting kids talking. We don't do, we don't provide communication devices. We don't have that kind of money. We don't make that much money in our fundraisers, but we um, provide step-by-steps and things like that, other ways to communicate. So it's just something that is a need in every community. And I'm so, so privileged to be able to provide that for ours. The work that you guys do through Believe Beyond Ability is truly inspiring. The Derby is a phenomenal idea. And the fact that kids can decide, I want to go, I want to stay, that is so, so cool. And I love that the Derby has grown over the years. You know, I love the idea that you do the, the medical equipment fair and the toy drive. And you guys just do really good work. I'm actually hoping that in 2024, I'll get to visit and attend a derby. I would love to do that. So fingers crossed that will happen. Yes. Oh, Carrie, you should. Plus, Arizona in February. I don't know what, it doesn't matter where you live. February is going to be better here than where you, <laughs> where you are. Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar with Believe Beyond Ability, I will definitely leave a link to their website in the show notes below. And I would highly recommend that you go and check them out, see the work that they're doing. Hey, maybe you're interested in creating your own derby in your state or community. You know, check them out because they're a phenomenal group. Um, now, 
Let's talk about Abigail. You wrote about Abigail in the book, and I would love for you to share more about Abigail and what you learned in working with Abigail. Hmm. Yeah. So what I learned from her was that um, so much, so many things, but so she was an, also somebody I met in birth to three, and she had had spina bifida. And that is one of those things where I feel like we kind of think that medically we don't see that very much anymore and that we've figured all that out. And then, then, then somebody doesn't, then here we are. So her, she was, um, crake because of her spina bifida. So her spina bifida was really, really high. So she had no vocal sounds and she was a trach and, um, normal cognition. And so she learned, when I met her at two, she had over 300 signs because that was the only way to communicate. And so if you have over 300 words at two, you have normal cognition, you have normal receptive language skills. Um, You actually have normal expressive language skills. It's just that not very many people know sign, right? So um what we realized as she was going to go into preschool and be with kids who are functionally verbal and she was going to be placed in not a special ed preschool because she needed literacy instruction and all kinds of things since her cognition was proven to be normal. Um, we were like, we got to get her device so that she can communicate with people who don't know sign. So we did that and she um, used it and we even worked on full sentences and conjugation and articles and things that sometimes we don't work on that young with, um, especially if it was alternate ac- access for her, she could use her hands. Well, obviously she had three in their signs. So she's pointing at pictures, but she was generating sentences on her device at three and they moved away. I, I did all this in birth to three in Washington, but they moved away. But I think she was about seven or eight. And mom reached out and said, one day she started talking. It was a medical miracle. Nobody knows how those vocal folds repaired itself, how they could never come to midline due to her spinal bifida. But they did. And again, I don't, I'm, somebody listening is probably going, oh, we know how that happened, but I don't know how that happened because that's not my specialty. But we never knew that. We never knew that that prognosis for speech was possible. Talk about guarded. I mean, no, it, it was impossible as far as we knew anatomically for her. Um, but, you know, the body repairs itself. Like, we don't know the way, we, it, in ways we don't understand. I mean, you, you see that all the time if you work with stroke patients, that the body and the brain figure out a way. And so when she started talking, she talked in full sentences. She did not go through babble. She did not go through all the speech sounds. She did not go through any of that. She, because she already had typical expressive language skills in alternative form, her verbal speech was all was complete sentences with verb conjugation with all that was taught on the device and her and so many other reasons for so many other kids for so many other reasons made me realize that there is a sense of urgency in me to get kids communicating as early as possible 
for so many reasons. One is that we never know what's going to happen positively, which was her for sure, or negatively. Just this year, we had a girl who passed away at age seven and we had gotten her a device at two. And at the funeral, everyone is talking about what she said, what she loved, what they knew about her. And how did they know any of that? Because she told them on her eye gaze device at three and four and five and six. And so none of us know that she had seven years on this earth. But she, you know what she had? She had five years to communicate her thoughts, her feelings, her purpose. And so there are so many reasons why starting young make, is what we need to be doing. And in, in another way, and, and was applicable to the story I was telling, was that when we can prove that their receptive language skills are typical or that they have, are able to learn, they get included in general education. They get literacy instruction that is um, more typical to their age. They're not doing ABCs in high school and Brown Bear in high school and all that kind of stuff because they did that in preschool when those books were intended. Because if we can show that they are in there, then they deserve the instruction that is typical for their cognition and their receptive language skills, not their expressive language skills. So what you realize is that there's a very big difference between speech and language. Speech is the verbal output. But these kids don't necessarily have language disability. They just have had lack of access to it. And when you have access to it and they show you that they are expressive language skills, you realize their actual disability is a speech disability and that their language is just fine. And if we don't provide the expressive language opportunities, then we stunt the expressive language. I'm not convinced that kids are born with expressive language um, delays I think when they can't express themselves in any way, then they're delayed. Then it stunts their expressive language skills. And I don't see the harm in believing that, right? The, the, believing that none of them can do it and none of them have anything to say is so harmful. Believing that all of them understand everything that's being said and all they need is access is the most productive way to view this part of my profession. Okay. I want to talk to you about celebrating the Instones. The other day I thought about your chapter in the book on celebrating the Instones. And I thought about it because I had just had a conversation with a couple of therapists that are typically really excited and passionate about what they're doing. And they do great work. And they were coming down. So I asked them, I said, hey, what's going on? Looks like you had a rough day. And they said, you know what? We're so excited. We have a student. We, we just found switch access for him just a couple of weeks ago. And he is choosing to do it. He's actually using his device. He's using the switch. And we were thrilled. But then we had a conversation with everyone. There was like, well, well he's, not, he's like very little baby steps. He's not making huge leaps and bounds of progress. And they're like, how do we get across to people that 
We got to celebrate the baby steps. We have to look at the person and see what they are doing and not what they're not doing. How do we do this? How do we get people excited about the baby step? And that's when I thought about your book, Celebrating the Instones. So can you please share more about the idea of celebrating the Instones? Because I think this is a really, really important concept for all of us to understand. It's all about human connection. So anytime you make a human connection, you met your goal. And we need to begin to talk about it that way. That's one of the reasons why I, I kind of hate IEP goals and things like that, because I think we're, I don't know that we're measuring the right thing. And I don't think, I don't think anyone's ever been measure, measured their communication skills. We've never measured communication or the value of communication for those of us that are verbal. And we're trying to, and we have to, and I understand the system, but we need to, as a profession model, that every time they tell us something we didn't already know, they met the goal. That every time they express how they feel, what they think, they met the goal. And that, that is communication. We have, to come, we have to keep coming back to what that is. And I think that one of the reasons why we see some burnout in our field is because we're wanting to see particular gains that the student is not that doesn't care that much about. And so when we have student-driven goals, when we, have, um, when we recognize the value of communication in all forms and celebrate those things, then you have a successful day every day. Every day the child's awake and alert. You have potential for gain. And I think we might need a wall, um, you know, in the staff room with Post-its that say, Somebody told me this today. Somebody said this today. Somebody felt this today. Somebody, I know this. I know something new today. I think that it's those pieces that we should be measuring. So well said, and some really great ideas for celebrating the Instones. Okay, let's switch it up a bit here. I would love for you to share more about the new podcast, Awe and Wonder, that you are co-hosting. And I've listened to it. I really enjoy it. And, you know, in the book, he said something um, about being in awe and wonder. And I want to know, what does it mean to be in awe and wonder? And why do you believe creating an, an environment of awe and wonder is so important? Yes. Well, awe and wonder, the definitions itself I got from Brene Brown's book and um, love her and all that she does. But the Quotes that she uses from that basically talk about how we are wondering, I wonder if, if we try this, if we do this, what will happen? And then you set up an environment to test that theory and you sit back and observe. And that is when the magic happens. When we stop talking, when we stop our agenda, when we set up the environment and let them show you what they know, what they love, what they do, what they don't love, what they don't want to do. When you read the um, descriptions of all of it, it's about, it is our job to wonder and be inspired and set up the environment and step back 
and let the magic happen. And that has been every single story pretty much in the book is happenstance, not even intentionally as much as I would love to think that now I do that intentionally. I feel like so many times um, I had this thought, I wonder if, by the way, this might sound like Pollyanna, but it's not. To wonder something means that you're going to set up an environment and it could fail. And we're not, we don't operate in a world where failure is acceptable. Many, many therapists come from very type A programs where failure is not accepted. And so knowing that that success is that I learned something, not that the child did what I wanted them to do. And then you can wonder and you can go, I wonder if they can do 60 buttons instead of 15. That sounds crazy. You know how many people can make that jump? Huge percentages of kids. And we're just not wondering. We're sticking with status quo. And we think it's going to be too much. You know what? These kids aren't as fragile as you might think. And you know what? You can, you can bump them up to 60. And if they can't, you can always go back. This is, this is not a, there's never a no go back. But if we don't start taking more risks, if we don't wonder, if we don't let inspiration make us do brave things and put things in front of kids that we don't think that they can do and let them prove them otherwise, they never get to prove it. So it's up to us to create those awe and wonder opportunities so that we all learn more. So we named the podcast that. We, it's a limited edition. We are not doing one a week, anything like that. We did another perspective and we interviewed parents and device users and other people besides SLPs. And then we did one that was leaders and change makers, which was super fun and inspiring people in our field that have so much experience that you could talk, you could literally talk to them for five hours and not be bored. So those were super hard in the editing room. And we're gearing up to do another one. And the next one is going to be for fall and it's AAC and literacy, which is something near and dear to my heart in um, very excited about talking about that and releasing some open education resource modules around that. So we have a lot in store for that too. I am so excited for your new podcast and I can't wait to hear the new episode. Um, I'll make a, make sure that I leave a link in the, uh, show notes below for the, uh, and wonder podcast. So everyone can check it out and get lots of information and be inspired. All right, Brenda, where can people purchase your book? I see you in there. So we're on Amazon. I mean, you can go on Amazon and there is a um, black and white and there's a color version because there's some art, art in there. And then I will say that the Audible is probably one of the more common ways to to read it because so many of us travel from site to site and we have a car time. Um, and I actually read the Audible. So it's my voice and it's my my stories. So it's pretty personal to me. So Audible and um, Amazon is where you can find it. And yeah, I hope it inspires. Brenda, where and how can people reach out and contact you? Yeah. So I wear a couple different hats. So if you want to know about the nonprofit, we're just at believebeyondability.com. My private company is technically speaking, 
which I have a Facebook page. I have a website and technically speaking, AAC is my Instagram, which is where I post a lot of reels on treatment ideas for communication devices, users. So that is probably one of my fastest growing ways to reach people right now is through Instagram because they're really wanting treatment ideas and literacy AAC ideas and that I provide that a couple times a week. So that's fun. Um, but you can always email me just my name, brenda.delmonte at gmail.com. I mean, I, I don't, I am not an expert in anything, but I definitely specialize in, I've seen a lot and I love to talk through challenging, um, situations. Brenda, I so enjoyed our conversation today and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of Connect, Share, Inspire. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Brenda Del Monte. If you were inspired or learned something new, then please share this episode and don't forget to like and join the Connect, Share, Inspire community to stay passionate about the work you do and the life you live. Join me next time for my interview with Bridget Nicholson. Bridget is an occupational therapist and assistive technology consultant with over 36 years of experience. Bridget uses a unique method that focuses on the use of technology within an active learning approach and body up framework. She trains others on how to build body brain integration activities into both school and home life, which can make a significant difference in a child's life. So be sure to tune in to learn more about Bridget's unique and innovative approaches.